I'm Afshin Ratansi, and welcome back to Going Underground, broadcasting all around the world from Dubai, where world leaders are touching down for the UN Climate Change Conference starting this Thursday. COP28 occurs amidst an alleged UK-US-EU nation-backed genocide in the region, leaving hundreds of thousands hungry tonight in Gaza. If today we have a world full of surplus food and people are starving, with tens of millions in the USA forced to rely on federal aid to eat, what happens when climate change exponentially increases wildfires, floods and droughts all around the world? With me in Washington, D.C. is the U.S. government's former chief economist at the Department of Agriculture and now senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, Dr. Joseph Glober. Thank you so much for uh, coming on. So varied figures, but around, what, maybe 830 million are going to go hungry tonight. Uh, more, more than enough uh, food for everyone in the world to, to eat. What would you uh, have done at the recent food forum in Rome uh, if you were still the U.S. Department of Agriculture's chief economist? Would you have sort of shouted at them? Yeah, I don't. I think these problems are beyond the chief economist. I mean, I, you have to remember that something like 60 percent of the world's hungriest people are in areas where there's conflict right now. And so that that's a very difficult thing. You're talking about much, much bigger problem in the sense of wars going on, you know, we've seen this all refugees, all sorts of personal calamities that are, again, hunger is part of that. I mean, clearly it is. So, but you were, you were there at the Department of Agriculture for 30 years. Uh, obvious that the countries that are listed uh, by your institute and, and others as uh, at risk of uh, widespread universal famine they're all under military attack or military intervention from the United States. I mean, what did you think is uh, at the uh, Agriculture Department? I mean, if we Congo, Sudan, I, Ethiopia. I, I, I guess I don't under. I don't I, take your point. I, I what, what countries in particular you're talking about? Congo, Sudan, I mean, Ethiopia, it, Afghanistan, Yemen, Somalia, Syria, Gaza. I suppose now. Yeah, I, 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 I wouldn't necessarily point the finger uh, at the U.S. on that, but uh, if that's your opinion, that's fine. But no, no, I, I, uh, I'm asking you, what do you think about the connection between food and that violence, the weapons trade? And oh, so no question, absolutely. I'm. I, I think that's uh, again, as I say, it's one of the major causes of hunger, um, because it, you know, when you look at hunger, it's really boils down to a availability on the one hand and affordability on the other. And unfortunately, poverty and, and hunger are go hand in hand. That's a tragic uh, part of all of this. But, uh, but the bigger problem in some areas is just availability, particularly in com areas where there's conflict. And, and that's what we've seen is this big uh, surge over the last 10 years in, in the number of hungry people. And it's been in areas like the Sahel, they are the countries that you mentioned. And again, it's, it's totally exacerbated by war. And yet, uh, recent headlines have centered on, say, the Black Sea Grain Initiative or the Indian uh, non Basmati uh, uh, rice export regime instituted by the Indian government. So hunger has been increasing before these. Uh, Two uh, issues raise their heads. Sure, sure, but but prices play a big role here, and when you have actions taken by governments that exacerbate food supplies or you know jeopardize food supplies, that has an impact on on um, on prices, and because of that, it makes um, things like rice and wheat and other things less affordable for those. 
what's who, your, you know, import those products. What's your reading of the Black Sea Grain Initiative? Because we had someone from the Oakland Institute who told us that uh, next to, it had next to no impact on poor countries. Just 3% of the Ukraine food went to poor countries. It was uh, more of a propaganda weapon in this war in, in Ukraine than actually... Oh, uh, no, I, I, think that's, I think that's totally false. I mean, I think it's, you know, look, Ukraine ex uh, supplied 10% of the world's wheat something like 13% of the world's corn before the war. That's been, um, you know, unfortunately, they're now producing 35% less than what they were doing pre-war. That's a result of war, and that's less wheat in the world market. That's less corn in the world market. You know, in terms of where the wheat went, um, in one sense, it's almost immaterial because what those supplies mean for the rest of the world is lower prices, and lower prices are felt by every country in the world. So yes, there there was um, some wheat did go to uh, Africa through the World Food Program. A lot of uh, uh, wheat went to North Africa and in the Middle East. You know, traditional buyers of Ukraine wheat. But right now, there's almost nothing coming out of the Black Sea, and their production is uh, you know has been reduced by 30, 40 percent. So I mean, that's that's the reality of the war. And you might argue that that's not it doesn't have an impact, but I, I would argue longer term it has a, certainly has an impact because if there is another shortage somewhere else in the world, you'll see prices jump again, uh, big time. But uh, the UN themselves only said three percent went to uh, those countries, and Currently. prices have been well, historically low. To what? But but what do you think the what do you think the market for uh, Ukraine wheat was before the war? in sub-Saharan Africa. You hazard a guess? I mean, it, it was, it no, was, tell me. it, it's not one of their big, it's not one of their big markets. You know, the- So it wasn't really about- But then why was it sold to us as, this it's is all going, about, you're going to starve it's Africa? It's all about world supplies. It's all about world supplies. And supplies are, when you have less supplies on world markets, you have higher prices. And that's why you have problems in, you know, with poor countries when there's an affordability issue in terms of buying grain. Yeah, but clearly Tony Blinken at the State Department wasn't saying that. He was saying Ukraine is a fundamental part of sub-Saharan Africa's dependence on food. And this is what we're hearing from NATO capitals. Well, I, again, you're talking about higher prices, you know, where an individual... No, they were talking about the actual food kind of, exports from Ukraine. Yeah, well, the, in, I'm just saying that the Ukraine, uh, which shipped, they're very important for the Mideast, North Africa. They shipped a lot of wheat in the past to Asian markets. They, they shipped some to Sub-Saharan Africa. And what we saw last year is that Sub-Saharan Africa had less wheat. Um, you know, they were down about 11%. And some of that was due to the fact that less wheat was coming out of the Black Sea and... Um, and the fact that wheat prices were so high in the first half of the year. Yeah, I mean, we heard from analysts that it was actually something benefiting a big agribusiness. How difficult is it being a senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute? Because you're funded by Moscow, you're funded by Washington, you're funded by KPMG, which is a Lockheed Martin consultant uh, company. I mean, they had deals with Raytheon. How how uh, does an institute like yours remain independent we, when food have, is so we, weaponized at the moment and research on how food uh, systems work is so weaponized? Yeah, I think you'll I think you'll find in talking to people that the general impression of the work that 
my colleagues do is very objective. That they're the I have you're right. I've been funded by over my uh, short time there. I've been funded by uh, a, a lot of different countries. A little bit from the U.S., but mostly from Europe, from uh, other other countries around the world, and essentially to look at issues like trade, to look at food security issues, and to look at at um, uh, market analyses, uh, which was my former job was tracking markets around the world uh, at the Department of Agriculture. You don't think that one of the most fundamental reasons for global hunger is how pressured Global South countries are to privatize their land and uh, inevitably create oligarch power that uh, ends up with their food being exported instead of being fed to their populations? No, I don't, I don't think that's an, an issue. I think improving productivity around the world is, is very important. And that's, you know, that's true in the poorest countries of sub-Saharan Africa. It's true, it's true in the big exporting countries like Australia or Europe or, or the U.S. Um, we have a, a, a serious challenge over the next several years to feed a growing population and a population that is, um, you know, uh, uh, facing climate change and other things that, that are really important. And that's going to mean, you know, countries around the world need to improve productivity. Yeah, we heard from Professor Vandana Shiva on this uh, program. People can watch our interview with her on Rumble, saying actually productivity was much higher before the uh, incoming uh, huge crop companies. They destroyed productivity. I understand your institute is also funded by uh, Crop Life International, which is represents BASF. I Dow, don't, Duke, I one is I don't know what I, I don't know what crop life if there's much funding that comes from them. Most of the funding comes from they're on your website as a major funder, governmental and Syngenta. Uh, but productivity, I, I'm not, I'm not, productivity yeah. of crops, um, you believe is helped by these big multinationals that clearly have an interest in making those countries dependent on yeah, them. I think for there's food a. Well, we also support our, our our other centers like CIMIT that that have public research on on wheat varieties that have been shipped all around the world. I mean, there yes, there are private developers for uh, things like maize and soybeans in particular, uh, but we've seen in, enormous productivity gains. I don't understand the point of of you know you would refer to this other study because that certainly is contrary to anything that we have or that we've, we've uh, shown. I mean, when you were at the uh, Department of Agriculture, it was during that period that China brought 800 million out of poverty, clearly with, uh, albeit some small-scale farming, but under uh, large democratic controls right up to Beijing. Tonight, 40 million in the United States will starve without federal aid and your food SNAP program. Doesn't that show a stark contrast about food security? How did that happen? It's it's uh, unfortunately there were changes in government or in um, in the social safety net in the 90s that took away a lot of the income support, replaced it with a whole suite of programs. And we right now we have a food stamp program that is roughly 142 billion dollars annually. These provide supplemental nutrition assistance to families in need. And the projections are over the next 10 years that those will run, those outlays will run around 120 billion a year. Yeah, but you mentioned aid uh, and federal aid uh, changes in the 90s. But I mean, 
I mean, obviously the point is not to be doling out aid to people. It's, uh, it's self-sufficiency. No, absolutely. Uh, no, 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 absolutely. I mean, this is, these are big structural issues that the U.S. has done poorly at, I would, I would argue. I mean, we just, we have persistent po poverty, particularly in rural areas or in urban areas, but also in rural areas as well. And uh, you have families that have been generations in poverty. And those are not things to be proud of, I would agree. And did you see it coming when you were in the Department of Agriculture? Because as I say, a different uh, economic system. This isn't system, new. Like this isn't new. If, I were to go, if I were to go back to 1998, when, we, when, when I was at the Department of Agriculture and we initiated this survey, we had 12% of families in uh, uh, food insecure households. You know, it's down marginally since then. So your point of making very little progress, I think, yes, that's that's certainly a problem. But this is something that, that the U.S. is or certainly we've been uh, tracking or the U.S. Department of Agriculture has been tracking uh, for many years now. At least it's getting better. Dr. Joseph Glober, I'll stop you there. More from the U.S. government's former chief economist at the Department of Agriculture and now senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute after this break. Welcome back to Going Underground. I'm still here with the Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, Dr. Joseph Glober. Uh, Joseph, so uh, we were talking about uh, systems of, uh, of food and uh, the poverty in the United States. Uh, what about uh, what's really been in the news lately, which is about this India non-Basmati rice ban? Why, what's your understanding of why India is doing it in any way? Well, you have to look at this in perspective. Uh, India has, their rice production has, has increased substantially over the last 15 years. Back in, in the early 2000s, you know, they were probably about 5% of the world market. They're now 40% of world exports come from India. Um, they've been very important for a number of uh, countries, uh, a, a rice supplier for many, many countries, both in Asia, but also in Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, West Africa. Um, uh, yeah, so the 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 uh, at least the way the the Indian government has articulated the ban is that they they have concern about food inflation and food prices or rice prices have been high in India like they have been all around the world and they have more poverty uh, than so the they, whole of sub-Saharan Africa put together in India. They have poverty. Yes, that's true. They also have more rice to they have surplus rice in their 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 country. They have plenty of rice to feed their population. That's not an issue, I think. Um, uh, but the Modi government, it's rice isn't the only thing they have a ban on onions. They have a ban on uh, they've had a ban on wheat last year. So th this is all, you know, it's no surprise. The, the government is up for re-election uh, or they'll stand for general elections next year. Uh, they want to keep food prices, uh, you know, uh, try to keep a lid on inflation, like a lot of countries, I might add. I mean, inflation has been, food inflation has been, you know, uh, in the high double digits for many countries around the world, including Western economies, including the U.S., including um you know, it doesn't matter where. Yeah, actually, on very, that very subject, high. why is why is food inflation so much higher in Western Europe 
than in the Global South countries. Uh, well, one the reason for one, that. Yeah, there's a good reason for that. Is that um, you know this is this. I think is a fact that a lot of people don't appreciate is the fact that most of the costs of retail food comes after it leaves the farm. So if you look at the price of bread, uh, the the wheat in that bread is only about 5% of the value. So all these other costs afterwards, things like labor costs, things like energy costs, you know, to transform the mill the wheat into flour, to transform that flour into bread, to get that on grocery shelves, all that costs money. And those have been things that wage rates have been up in a lot of Western economies. We've seen uh, very, very high um, uh, energy costs. So that is across the board. It's, you know, it's oil, it's electricity, it's other things. All these things have added to processing costs and caused a big increase in um, retail food. So it's more likely to be the loss of the Nord Stream pipeline. Why then in mainstream media, so-called, are they always talking about uh, food supply and farm supply when it comes to higher yeah, prices? Yeah, I agree. You, you, you raise a great great point. I, I, if you read the press interviews people have done with me, I always point out to them that most of the costs come after the, the farm. And, and some of those, if you look at the retail price in, in a... a a more developed, developing economy that those those margins typically are less. That is, they're they're maybe less processed or uh, things. But it's 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 still true there too. They're uh, getting, for example, getting grain in from the port to inland uh, uh, markets. That all costs money, and that's where we see big inflation for a lot of countries. Plus, the exchange rate. Um, you know, uh, commodities are all de uh, denominated in dollars, uh, typically. So if you put those in local currencies, look at Egypt, for example. Uh, uh, wheat prices in Egypt, uh, in Egyptian pounds, you know, are at high, very continue to be at very, very high levels, whereas world prices have generally come down to being below, right now, world uh, pre-war levels. So... And clearly, until de-dollarization, the dollar is a uh, refuge in that case. But these journalists are not idiots. Uh, is it a question of the fact that food policy is weaponized? You must have come across that at the Department of Agriculture, how food policy can be weaponized and how, uh, whether it be protectionism or uh, whether it be as part of military intervention. I mean, we only have to look at sanctions regimes imposed by the United States on countries that saw... Uh, starvation, Iraq, obviously, when you were at the Department of Agriculture, to see how weaponized this subject can be when it finally filters well, through. I, the I, yeah, media. I don't. I mean, look, you're you're talking about uh, in one sense. I mean, you're conflating wars, which I think, again, I think we're both in agreement. Wars are bad things for populations. They really create enormous problems for uh, uh, poverty. They ca cause problems with hunger. Um, but in terms of, of food prices, just the relationship between food prices and underlying farm prices or import costs, uh, there's a lot of costs that have nothing to do with the farm sector, but have everything to do with what's going on in the rest of the economy. Yeah, but the journalists aren't idiots. Where are they getting this information I from? Think, well, no, I, I, do, I think the journalists have a hard time understanding that. I, you know, I'm, I, I find that m most of the conversations I have, people say, huh, I didn't know that. I didn't realize that, you, you know. You seem to have explained it relatively costs. simply. 
Well, it, it's complex in the sense of you try to, under, you know, you try to sort through those those costs. But, uh, you know, the farm value of, of food at home consumed in the U.S. is around 25 percent on average. If you look at total food, so including the food consumed away from home, it's less than, you know, it's about 13 percent. If you look at the consumed away from home, it's like 5 percent because you you have to pay everyone in the restaurant, everything else. So those are complexities that I think are, ah, it's are just very a, difficult It's just a pie explain. chart, arguably. I mean, why don't they also understand, uh, interestingly, I mean, you were, again, you were probably at the department when the uh, so-called uh, natural famine in Ethiopia occurred, leading to live aid. Uh, Eritrea now has full food security. Why is it that a country which is closed off like that has full food security? Or say a country I under. A country that, I think is a country that doesn't have uh, conflict going on. I mean, I, again, look, this this is. I, I don't think this is autarky is is necessarily the answer. Autarky works very well as long as you're having yields that you're producing enough to feed your population. Unfortunately, a lot of these areas are also in areas with highly variable rainfall, highly variable yields, and the fact is they they have. Um, you know, when they have big droughts or production shortfalls, they need to import, and they they need they need assurance. Well, Eritrea doesn't. There is available, as far as I know, and uh, and and it, yeah, when it comes to Otaki, I suppose yeah, we similarly can talk about about Cuba. But isn't the point here then that privatized food systems encourage scarcity to increase profits? It's uh, no, I would, I would agree. I would disagree. I strongly about that. I think that that if you look at, I, I, you know, a great case in point is what happened with Ukraine. Okay, so here you had a country again supplying ten percent of the world's wheat, all of a sudden shut off entirely in those early months of the war, with big markets like Egypt and others trying to find food. I think the market worked extremely well. That that most of these countries were able to source food from other suppliers, and those are private trade that's essentially in which case that. why was wheat not much cheaper for all that time when uh, uh when uh, because yeah. you had 10 percent of the wheat that wasn't in the market i mean i'm telling you this is this is basic economics it's supply and demand if you take 10 percent of the wheat off the market because of blocking the ukraine from the rest of the the market the wheat prices will go up in fact i would argue that in the early months of the war there was concern that russia wouldn't be able to export wheat and russia is another major market that caused wheat prices to spike you know to record levels in yeah but there always seem to be these surpluses behind the scenes isn't that the point because that helps the scarcity which increases the profits why is there any hunger if the world has enough food it's a question of, I think the, the the question is affordability, and the question is poverty. And if you see the progress that was made in countries like China, if you look at the progress that was made globally prior to the uh, you know the last five years or so, you see that they marched hand in hand with improvements in income around the world. That makes food affordable, and that makes the the uh, Hunger uh, tends to diminish in those things. Now, when you add conflict on top of it, that's that just creates all sorts of uh, additional problems that aren't easy to solve. But uh, to me, the the number one thing, if 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 I were king, would be to to solve the problem with conflict, and and uh, um, I think we would see poverty diminish 
just like we have seen in places like Eritrea, places uh, you know around the world. The Sahel, where I lived for a couple of years, is just a wonderful place. Uh, you know, but it, it, if you have wars going on, it's very, very difficult. Of course, Sahel re region embracing different uh, food systems as we speak. I mean, how uh, dependent are the uh, tens of millions of people that rely on uh, federal aid? How, how dependent are they on, on uh, what suddenly happens in the House of Representatives in Washington from day to day? Uh, can, can suddenly a food yeah, snap program... I, I'm not sure I know who you're talking about. Are you talking about farmers? Well, I'm just saying as regards budgets and whether budgets are voted on and agreed in the House... Uh, yeah, no, I mean, look, that it's right now the, the Congress is totally dysfunctional. And, and I think that's uh, uh, a, a, a huge concern and it needs to be. For how long has this happened? I mean, this, even when you were at the Department of Agriculture, uh, all these tens of millions of people's lives hung in the balance uh, if a budget was. No, I, if you're if, look, if you're talking about farm bill. The, the one is the, the deadline, yes, the farm bill expired, but, but farmers are covered this year under the, the old farm bill. So the real question will be next year uh, as planning uh, decisions are being made, that they'll have to have a farm bill by the end of the year or have some extension of the current farm bill, which, which could happen. But, but you know with the farmers, you're talking about roughly, um, there's uh, USDA, so says that the number is around 2 million farms in the U.S. But if you look at the farms that are actually producing 85% of the production, you're only talking about 300,000 or so farms. But but yes, they are, uh, a lot of them look to farm subsidies, but farm subsidies are a small part of their overall income. And in fact, I would argue as an economist that these programs should be done away with. Dr. Joseph Glober, thank you. Thanks very much. And that's it for the show. We'll be back with a brand new episode on Saturday. But until then, keep in touch via all our social media. If it's not censored in your country, and head to our channel, Going Underground TV, on rumble.com to watch new and old episodes of Going Underground. See you Saturday.